You're listening to The 66, the podcast where we go through the books of the Bible one at a time. I'm Andrew Kingsley, co-podcasting with Drew Kaiser, and we are in the Gospel of John. And today we have a very uh, daunting task ahead of us. We're going to try and take on three chapters. If you've been listening to our series on John, we've been moving it about. Kind of got a little choked up when you thought yeah, about it. just thinking about it. It's making me uh, stressed out. Uh, we usually take on, at least in John, we've done about a chapter an episode. Yeah, we've probably been spending too much time on it, but we're, we won't announce our next project yet, but we've we're excited to get started on a new book. I think we can say Old Testament book. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're both really excited about studying that one. Yeah, but today, we need to... yeah, so we're having to speed up basically to get there on time. And also, this is how we would have divided these chapters up anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So we're not just trying to speed up and do this just to get done with it. These all go together. Yes, you know, they're just natural fit. And we're trying to do today fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen. Those yeah. three chapters of John, because these record the last teachings that Jesus is going to give to his disciples before he goes um, on trial, and then obviously before he gets to the cross. In chapter 17, you get into his high priestly prayer, and then at the beginning of chapter 18, he's arrested. So really, these three chapters, uh, like you were saying right before we started, are some of his last words to his disciples before his crucifixion. Well, and we said last episode that with chapter 13, we get into the private ministry of Jesus. And so all of this from 13 through 17 occurs on the same evening, the evening in which he was arrested. A lot of stuff packed into that, and it's hard to believe because we're not used to reading the Bible that way, but that, that this encompasses an entire night. And so it's a private ministry and that is going to be very important when we come to our think section, particularly with regard to thoughts on the Holy Spirit. We'll mm. restrain ourselves for that, but keep in yeah. mind our outline. It's very important here that this is a private ministry with his apostles. And now, you know, when we get to chapter 14, even fewer apostles than what we were looking at in chapter 13 because Judas in chap- is gone. Yeah, yeah, in chapter 13, Judas gets up from the table and he goes away to betray Jesus. Right. So the way that we're going to divide this up, and, and we're going to have to skip some some good stuff, but the way we're going to survey this landscape is to look at it in terms of, first of all, declarations, secondly, promises, and thirdly, warnings that he issues in this in this final conversation. It's kind of interesting to think about. If you knew... This was, you only had a few more hours to live. What would you say? You know, if you knew tonight would be your last night on earth, who would you talk to and what would you say to them? Mm-hmm. Well, we have that answer with Jesus. He would talk to these 12 men or 11 men in this case now, and he would say what we're reading in chapters 14 through 16. They're the only ones with him, the women aren't there, his family is not there. His larger group of disciples are not there, just the eleven, and they are walking, I imagine, from one place to another after they have eaten this last supper. And so here's what he says, and we'll start with the declarations, which include uh, I am statements number six and seven. Right. And uh, the first one is number six in John chapter 14, verse six. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Very exclusive statement saying Mm -hmm. that, you know, he is the only way one can get to the Father. He is the truth. He is the only source of eternal life. Right. Okay, so the second declaration comes in verses 8 and 9, and and I could have done it in just verse 9, but I love the interaction between Philip and Peter that leads, I mean, Philip and Jesus, excuse me, Mm -hmm. that leads to the second declaration. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? 
I kind of feel like mm-hmm. he's sighing here, just you know, oh yeah. man. <laughs> I've you know I've got I've spent all this time with him and he still doesn't get it and so yeah. he says this this is the declaration whoever has seen me has seen the Father how can you say show us the Father you know, you know if you ever wondered yeah. if Jesus Jesus was one hundred percent divine and at the same time one hundred percent human take a look at this one as an example of his human side as he is declaring his divine side. I, you look at me, you see the Father, and wow, Philip, you know, I'm, you just hear the the frustration here on his uh, on his voice. Mm-hmm. Third declaration, verse fifteen of chapter fourteen: If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You know, when I study with folks, sometimes this question comes up: um, If you love Jesus, uh, can, can here's the question: Can somebody say they love Jesus? if they're not living according to his commandments. And so many folks that are outside the body of Christ or they, you know, haven't made a decision to to be a Christian have trouble answering that because everybody wants to say that they love Jesus. Mm-hmm. But everybody can't say that they are trying to live by his commandments. And so this is a tough one even though it's easy to understand. It's a it's a bold statement, a very tough declaration. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The converse is true. If you're not keeping his commandments, you can't say that you love Jesus. Now, right. All right. Now we get to the seventh and final I am statement. Remember, these I am statements are packed with already an implicit declaration of his divinity. Because he's saying, I am, that's the name of God, according to Exodus chapter 3. But then the predicate there gives us some information about Jesus Christ. And so this is in John 15, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 as the whole declaration. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine... Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Now notice he's saying he is the vine and the disciples individually are the branches. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not talking about different denominations as branches of the, the one church. He's saying I am the head of the church and my disciples each individually are branches on me. So we have a connection to him. We do have a relationship with Christ which is described in terms of being branches on the vine. He goes on, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And then I like verse 8, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Mm -hmm. If we're not bearing fruit for the kingdom, how can we say we are disciples of Christ? He is not describing someone who has made some weak decision for Christ, maybe follows through to baptism and then just um, appears at church every once in a while. He's describing somebody who puts his life on the line and bears fruit for the kingdom. And he says, that's how you prove that you are my disciples. Uh, let me get to the the last uh, declaration in chapter 15, as I'm counting it, uh, verses 12 through 15. This follows up his vine and branches analogy. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. We saw something similar to this in chapter 13. So he says, Greater love is no one than this, as someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. So there you have the declarations of Jesus. You can see some very heavy stuff that he's laying down on them Mm -hmm. this last conversation. Now, let's get to the promises. Backing all the way back up to the beginning of chapter 14, here's the first promise in verses 1 through 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Okay, now the second group of promises, and I'm t- I know I'm just flying over these, but mm-hmm. we're just doing our reading. We'll come back and discuss some of this stuff. The second group of promises, and I'm just going to do a cluster here of promises regarding the Holy Spirit, and this is definitely something that we'll be returning to. Right. They all start in chapter 14, verse 16, where it says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then chapter 16, verse 7. There he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And this is the real important part. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. So those are the promises. That's not all of them, but that pretty much covers what he had promised regarding the Spirit. Let me give you another cluster of promises about uh, his departure from them, beginning in chapter 16, verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer, and again a little while, and you will see me. So it seems to be a promise regarding his resurrection, but it's Mm -hmm. veiled. And they even talk about how he's speaking in riddles or dark sayings and then he starts speaking more plainly near the end of chapter 16. Right. But he, he continues this in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So he's promising, albeit in a veiled way, his resurrection. Although Mm -hmm. he's spoken more plainly about that in other passages earlier in his ministry. Yeah. All right, one last promise. That's verse 33 of chapter 16. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. All right, before we end the reading, let me back up and get a couple of warnings that he issues to them in this last conversation. The first one, chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Don't expect you know, to be loved because you are disciples of Jesus Christ. They hated me. It stands to reason that they're going to hate you. Okay, next morning, very similar to the last one. I could have skipped it, but it's very striking, so I thought I would share it from chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. That's really interesting to me. What Does that make you think of anything in particular? Especially that last little clause Muslims. there. I mean, yeah. It makes me think of Paul. I don't know if that's where you're going. Oh, yeah. Because Paul kills Stephen. I mean, he doesn't kill him. You know, well, he's standing he pretty there. much puts a stamp of approval on the death of yeah. Stephen. And he thinks he's, you know, he reveals that he thinks he's doing it for God as a Pharisee. Mm-hmm. So I think that I think he's directly referring to Pharisees here. Yeah, the yeah I, I read it that way too. 
Um, and I meant to say extremist Muslims. Of course, yeah. not not all Muslims. That's yeah. my disclaimer there. Keeps us political. For Muslim audience on that is attended now. Yeah. Uh, verse 32, finally, um, the last warning by my count. A lot of these you can categorize different ways. Yeah. But he says, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Mm-hmm. So there's basically two warnings there. A warning against the people outside of the disciples, and then a warning to themselves to beware of themselves. You're going to betray me. You're going to leave me. And then that optimism that is characteristic of Christ at the end, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. So as always, there's a lot to think about from what we have read. The first thing I want to look at, though, is something that we see a few times. We see it in 14.9, in 16.19, and again in 16.31. Basically, every time the apostles say something to Jesus, it's like Jesus is having to give a no, 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 you guys don't understand kind of a response. And what you said in the break I think is really good. I'm going to quote you on this. Hmm is this conversation is very conversational. Yeah. And it is. These three chapters are very conversational. <laughs> you thought I was going to yeah. say like some really deep, profound thing you said. Uh, but it is. And every time the apostles interject, look in verse 5 of chapter 14. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Verse 8, Philip interjects, and you already pointed out, uh, Jesus' response there, having to say, how long have I been with you? And you still don't know. And then you get to chapter 16, and they start saying to each other, what does he mean, a little while and we won't see him, and in a little while we will see him. And then he basically says to them, why are you saying this? Uh, truly I say to you. And then he goes on to explain what he's talking about. And then again, at the end of chapter 16, where his disciples say, ah, now you are speaking plainly, and you're not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Then Jesus says, do you believe? Behold, you're all going to scatter when I'm, after I'm crucified. So it's very similar to what Jesus said to Peter at the end of chapter 13 uh, that we talked about in our last episode, where Peter makes this real bold statement, Lord, why can't I follow you? I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus says, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So there's this back and forth really starting there in chapter 13, even further back to the beginning of 13 where Jesus and Peter have that discussion about washing. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, where Peter makes those statements that Jesus has to correct him again. So I'm viewing this almost like a parent with a child you know, yeah. and, and we mentioned this a little bit in the last Child who doesn't listen very well. Exactly. You and know, a, a parent who's just got a little bit of time left. Yeah. You know, it's like he's been dealing with these children for three years, but now it's, you know, it's crunch time. Yeah, like and it's he's trying to get all you. of this in, and, you know, Philip's over here saying, well, you know what, uh, you just show us the Father. Mm-hmm. Ready to... And and they think they're impressing him. You know, Peter and Philip in particular. Show yeah. us the Father and it's enough for us. And he's just 
you know, I, I, you look at me and you see the Father. That's what yeah. I've been doing is showing you the Father. Philip, you know, thinking maybe he wanted to see like some fire and smoke come down or yeah. something. I don't know, just, just for proof, extra proof, I it, guess. I don't know what he was thinking. I don't know this statement in chapter sixteen that you just read. Uh, it's like uh, verses twenty nine and thirty. Now that you've quit talking in riddles and quit using figurative speech, we know you're from the Father. And he hasn't and been using... No, now you are speaking plainly. <laughs> but uh, he hasn't really been speaking in riddles the whole time for these two chapters, you know? Well, except for the part, you know, I think that's in the context of I'm going a little while and you yeah. will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. That's yeah, the only that. part that is figurative. Yeah. And it's not, you know, it's pretty plain. I mean, when he dies, they won't see him. Mm-hmm. And when he resurrects, they will see him. And they right. have the context of all of his other teachings to put that into. I'm right. getting frustrated with him, and I wasn't there. And I'm, Yeah. But I've had the benefit of John writing this, looking back on yeah. himself and the others and commenting on it and putting it together. Who knows what other things he was saying. Right, you know, I'm sure there's more that did not need to be included for us today. Right, I do think it's interesting to look at the patience that Jesus has to exercise when he's working with teaching his apostles, and I think something that he probably has to work in patience with us today in studying is this next big thing: the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit, because everybody yeah. has got a different idea about right. how the Holy Spirit affects us. What is it really? Is it the Word of God? Is it just the Bible? Is it something more? And I, I don't mean to say just the Bible is in, you know, to degrade Scripture in any way, but is well, some it... Some people have that view, that the right. Spirit is just the Bible. Right. And then you, you know? have others, you know, maybe on the opposite end of the spectrum, that say, you know, the Spirit is like a voice inside your head that yeah. tells you, uh, you know, just like me and you are having our conversation. Mm-hmm. To where there's an extra entity in your head explaining something. Additional information, even. Right. In addition to what the Bible has revealed. And uh, I want to approach this very carefully. I don't want to, you know, have a spirit of arrogance or, you know, conceit or any claim to more knowledge than anybody else. Right. Because I realize that we're not on the side of most of evangelical Christianity and what we're about to say. But I feel like John 14 through 16 is one of the most misunderstood passages of Scripture in the Bible because of what people do with it with regard to the Holy Spirit. And I believe that they do it in all sincerity but when they read those words that, that we read a moment ago regarding the Spirit, they apply them to every Christian person. When what, G, what we're reading here, and we need to understand, looking at the context, is we're reading a private conversation that Jesus is having with his apostles only. Now, right. I, I want to share a few examples of Christian thinkers that I respect who applied these words to all believers. Because I think it's, you know, let them represent themselves. And this is just stuff I pulled from my library as I had time to do it. And uh, one is a debate that I have between N.B. Hardiman and uh, Ben Bogard, a a missionary Baptist named Ben Bogard. This was in 1938, public debate in Little Rock, Arkansas, regarding the work of the Holy Spirit and some other issues. And one of the propositions defended by Bogard was, The scriptures teach that the sinner is so depraved that in his conviction and conversion, the Holy Spirit exercises a power or influence distinct from and addition and in addition to the written word. Okay? okay. Now, I believe that's pretty much the Baptist or the Calvinist point of view on the Spirit's role in conversion. And one of the scriptures that he appealed to was John 14 through 16. At some point in the debate, Bogard said this, Did you ever stop to think or to consider that Jesus said the Holy Spirit would come to take his place? Have you not read where Jesus said, I will pray to the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever? While what I am affirming is that the Holy Spirit is personally present 
is really present in the conviction and conversion of the sinner as Jesus was present when he dealt with men and women while he was here in his body during his personal ministry. Okay. So he's looking at John 14 through 16 and saying, you know, all of the things that Jesus promised his disciples, he was promising to every disciple, including you and me. All right, okay. there's, one, there's one example. Here's another one by somebody I really respect, William, William Lane Craig. Did you study him in apologetics in school? The name is very familiar. I've got his book right here on my desk, Reasonable Faith. Good book on apologetics. Okay. He's one of the foremost uh, apologists uh, that is alive today, debating the greatest agnostic and atheistic thinkers that he's debated them all. Uh, Sam Harris, um, what's the guy that the God delusion? Uh, Richard Dawkins, you know, all these guys. Oh, wow. And uh, I think he's very intimidating to them. Uh, as you read, you see that he doesn't even blink. You know, he's Bill a giant. Nye, science you know, guy. Bill Nye has not yet uh, debated him, debated I don't Bill think. I don't... Bill Nye debated somebody, but that's off topic. Let's, yeah. Let's not go yeah. down that. Um, but this guy, Christopher Hitchens, is another guy that um, uh, Lane Craig has debated. And, uh, you know, what's really a guy that thinks so logically. Oh, I have a quote here. Sam Harris called him the one Christian apologist who seems to have put the fear of God into all my fellow atheists. And Sam Harris does not prone, Sam Harris is not prone to exaggeration. So uh, that was quite a compliment. Now, Craig's position on apologetics is that the arguments and evidence may be used to support the believer's faith, but the basis of faith is, and I quote, self-authenticating witness of God's Spirit who lives within him. And so he quotes John 14, 26, and he says, What John is talking about is the inner assurance the Holy Spirit gives of the basic truths of the Christian faith. The assurance does not come from human arguments, but directly from the Spirit himself. Okay. Okay, that I, that blows me away because here's a man... Interesting who is an apologist who argues Christian evidences to atheists, but now he's saying you won't believe any of these unless the Spirit elects to illuminate your mind to them. Hmm. So I was surprised when I ran into those. Um, now, here's a name that most of our listeners will recognize, Francis Chan. A few years back, Francis Chan wrote a book called The Forgotten God. Um or Very I'm popular. sorry, I'm sorry, Forgotten God. There's mm -hmm. probably a big difference between the Forgotten God and Forgotten God. But mm -hmm. he's talking about the Holy Spirit, who's not one of three gods. I mean, kind of have a problem with the title because you either, yeah. if you know about, he's not a God separate from the Father and the Son. He is God with right. those two other persons. But that's a whole nother debate that maybe. Well, John has already gotten us into that debate in yeah. the very first episode, right? Right. Uh, so, he wrote this book about how people have forgotten the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. And uh, he urges readers to emphasize the Spirit more in their lives. And here's what he says in the book. He says, If you or I had read only the Old and New Testaments, we would have significant expect expectations of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And then he goes to John 14 saying, The Lord said, Another comforter is coming, that he told his disciples it was to their advantage that he come. And we've read that. And then he says this, Chan says this, If we read and believe these accounts, we would expect a great deal of the Holy Spirit. He would not be a mostly forgotten member of the Godhead whom we occasionally give a nod of recognition to, we would expect our life with the Holy Spirit to look radically different from our old life without Him. Now, the thing I disagree with on that is that reading those accounts in John 14 would not necessarily make us believe that the Spirit will be active in our own lives. Now, other, other passages of Scripture would give us the expectation of having the Spirit in our lives. But not John 14 through 16, because John 14 and 16 is not addressed to us, generally. It's addressed to 
the eleven disciples who stayed true to Jesus, at least, you know, throughout the, the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. Okay. Uh, so there, those are three examples. Well, there's some of a us... distinction that he's going to make in John 17 with his prayer. Mm-hmm. We'll make a distinction between praying for his specific apostles and then praying for those who would believe through the apostles. That's a good point. So you know that that's one passage that you could go to to show, in context, this conversation is just with eleven men. Yeah, my and question, the promises are for them. I don't want to take you too far off of um, this discussion here about the Holy Spirit because I do want to talk about how it works um, in us from day to day. But I will ask you this: uh, when we talk about this conversation, how does this conversation differ? from the end of Matthew, chapter 28, and then from Mark, where we talk about Jesus' conversation with his disciples there, his apostles there, rather, um, where he says to them, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And we certainly apply that yeah. to to all Christians, not just those. Uh, as a matter of fact, Lipscomb goes so far in his commentary, he kind of talks about the layers of what the the spirit was supposed to do from Jesus to the apostles to the people after him now to us hmm. kind of saying you know it was the apostles job to work more miracles and get more recognition kind of Jesus started it with the recognition then the apostles were supposed to get more recognition based on what Jesus says here uh, he, you will do greater works greater than works. I do yeah and he says, and now that gets to us, to where it's our job to go out and to reach all the nations and evangelize the entire world. So we definitely use so, that. So my question is, how do we differentiate and say these here with the Spirit applies only to the twelve and not to uh-huh. those beyond, but Matthew 28 applies to both the twelve and those beyond? I guess I'm uh, looking for what's I, the distinction. That's a good question. It's a fair question. And um, I've got two responses to it. Okay. Um, For one thing, there are other passages of Scripture that tell us the Spirit works differently with us than He did in those days. So you read this not only in the context of John 14 through 16, but in the context of the New Testament as a whole. For example, uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for miraculous knowledge, it will pass away. And he goes on to say, you know, the gifts of the church today, the ones that will abide are faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Um, and I believe that the Spirit leads us, illuminates our hearts, and guides us, but I believe that he does that through the Word of God that he revealed to inspired writers the Word of God is like an instrument that He uses in order to, to guide us in that way. Uh, it's called the sword of the Spirit, for example, in Ephesians 6.17. So that's my first response to your question. How do I differentiate between you know, the words that apply to us and the words that apply you know, just to the disciples? I would say... Just the you know, wider context. Yeah, in the wider context we're told that the Spirit's going to work differently today than he did with those 12. Um, Another consideration is this particular promise, the promise of the Spirit, was clearly fulfilled. You know, and when something is fulfilled, just like the Old Testament was fulfilled, it is set aside. And other promises that we're looking at, I read a bunch of promises here, other promises have yet to be fulfilled. Um, So let me explain what I'm talking about there. Before his ascension in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, he orders the disciples not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. So it's talking about this promise of the Spirit, another comforter, in John 14 through 16, which you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now this is the same group that we're talking about here in John 14 through 16, the apostles only. That's who he's talking to. And those were the ones baptized with the Spirit, just as Christ said in Acts 2, 1 through 4. And we know that because they're the ones preaching the gospel in tongues, 
on the day of Pentecost. And just as Christ promised, they were, you know, they everything was brought to their remembrance. They were guided into all the truth. Um, but the promise, for example, of many rooms in the Father's house, that hasn't been fulfilled yet. So it still stands. So that would be the second way I would address that question is, well, look at what has been fulfilled versus what hasn't been fulfilled. When you read Acts 2, you understand that all these things that he's promising about the apostles being guided in all the truth, that thing that was to occur, it happened in a very remarkable way so that no one could miss it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's a good question. but I think it's a good know, answer, too. I think that answers the question. Yeah. I, you know, you just look at some of the other things that he says. I mean, okay, we, you know, I'll turn your question on itself. Okay. Right? So, okay, I'm not, not, I know you're just, you know, having a discussion here. <laughs> I, know, I know you don't really disagree with me, but I know that some people would have a hard problem with this idea that we don't take everything that the Bible says and apply it directly to ourselves. Mm. But that's not the way we study other parts of it. We naturally make assumptions that we're not even thinking about. For example... Has anybody ever applied John 16.2 to themselves? Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Well, I mean, like you said, or unless they want to apply it to some terrorist group. Yeah, but they would know that they're taking it out of context and making application to that situation. Right. They would never think that's exactly what, what Jesus was prophesying. Mm-hmm. You know... Nobody would turn to John sixteen two and say, this is about Muslim extremism. Mm-hmm. They might make an application based on, you know, just as the there Jews were Jewish terrorists yeah. in uh, the days of uh, the apostles, there are Muslim terrorists today. They might say something like that, but they wouldn't go to John sixteen two. What about John say, sixteen uh-huh. sixteen? Has anybody quoted this in today's context? A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. Nobody's ever said, you know, right. there's going to come a time when we will not see Jesus any longer. Mm-hmm. Why not? Because it doesn't make any sense. And right. it's I already, would, it's already happened. And I would submit that the passages on the Holy Spirit applied to every believer doesn't make any sense because of how much trouble we have understanding God's will for our lives. If it were the case that every single believer in the world has received the Holy Spirit in the same manner Jesus is promising in John 14 through 16, why do Christians have so much trouble understanding God's will for their lives? Why are they not just like the apostles? Why are we not in total agreement on every issue? Why is it that there are very strong disagreements about I'm not talking about small things, but about how one is to obey the plan of salvation. The nature of God, whether they're Trinitarians or Unitarians, um, Armenianism versus Calvinism, uh, you know, the role of faith in salvation, the role of works in salvation, and then denominationalism and, and all these differences that we have. Uh, you know, you're telling me that all of us are guided by the same Spirit? Right. Miraculously? I think we are guided through the Word of God, but not miraculously. The biggest hole in that kind of thinking for me, because, if, I mean, being fair-minded, being honest, Francis Chan's book, you know, Francis Chan is, I, th- I think a lot of what he writes is really good, seems to be, Seems to be a pretty fair-minded, clear-thinking guy really trying to get back to the New Testament. Um, so, you know, I'm not just reading what he has to say and think, and I know you're not either, uh, but I'm not just reading what he has to say and go, oh, I'm well, not he's, sure he's trying to get back to the New Testament. Out. But there is... some, Maybe on some things. Yeah, I think on some things. I think he said some good things, for example, about hell. Mm-hmm. Writing a response to, um, I think he was responding to Rob Bell and some other guys in a book on hell and yeah. he had a lot of scripture in that particular book my but, biggest problem with saying things like the spirit works with us now as it would have for the apostles is well if it does why aren't we healing people 
you know, mm-hmm. because well, some of them say they are. We should be healing folks, raising folks from the dead, and I mean those things should be happening all the time. They shouldn't be. It should be like acts. Some of them say that they are happening all the time. But there is well, the thing that's interesting for me is, and you know, I would hate for it to be the case that. Uh, hypothetically speaking here, I'd hate for it to be the case that those things are really going on and then you got people uh, like the situation I'd be in, like the Jews back then who wouldn't believe even though yeah. there were signs. So, you know, we need to be fair-minded well, to I think just about know that, the hospitals but. are full. Right. And if miracles were meant to be perpetuated, including the Spirit's miraculous guidance, then... What Christianity is all about is is healing all the problems in this world and not living for another world. And, yeah. you know, Jesus did not work miracles on behalf of every person that he found. Paul didn't. You know, we look at examples when we were studying Philippians. We looked at um, Epaphroditus and how he almost died. And here's a guy who can heal yeah, people right. miraculously and, and he, he doesn't do it. I think we're all missing the point when we make the spirit about that. Now, I guess we should say, and there will be other occasions where we can develop this more fully, but you you were talking about, I want to read what you were saying about Lipscomb whenever you get a chance. I want a copy of that. Um, well, he doesn't get very deep into well, it. He just kind of makes the but, you know, general statement. I believe in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Because the Bible teaches it in Acts 2.38 and Acts 5.32 and 1 Corinthians 16, uh, 19 and 20 and, uh, or not 16, 6, 19 and 20 and um, other, many, many other places. And I believe, I believe that is a personal indwelling of the Spirit too. I believe that the Spirit indwells us just as the Bible says that He does. I just don't believe that I get my guidance that way. I don't believe that being led by him necessarily has to involve a miraculous felt nudging within my soul. I believe I take it by faith that he dwells in me and has sealed me and it serves as a guarantee or a down payment on my salvation. And when I want to know what he wants me to do, what he has revealed about God, I open the word that he provided for me to study. Right. And I learned from that. And pray for, you know, pray for wisdom to be able to interpret the word correctly. Because there are some things that are, when you read about the Holy Spirit, it's definitely, it can be confusing. There's so many things going on. But I don't pray that he'll miraculously illuminate my eyes. Right. Like, you know, the Calvinists teach us to mm-hmm. do. Um, I just, you know, I... I think there's this, some... You missing know, when somebody I'm sorry to interrupt. No, you're fine. When you're fine. when somebody misses John fourteen through sixteen, they either are rushing to conclusions or they're trying or they're lying to us. And that was the problem I had with Chan in particular when he wrote this book, Forgotten God, mm-hmm. is I know he's a smart guy. Right. So why is he dropping those passages in with other passages on the Holy Spirit that do apply today, why is he mixing those together? Right. I, I, I'm not going to accuse him of purposely lying. Of course. So not. I'm guessing yeah. he's he's he rushing to has... conclusion. He's he's excited about this. He wants it to be the case, and and you know. I'm sure he's got. He probably just didn't publish them in his book. I'm sure he's got some kind of thought process behind it. Maybe you thought it was too dull. <laughs> I looked for it. There's a book. But, uh, I'll give you Lipscomb's quote here about the spirit. Kind of give you um, where he's coming from if we got a little bit of time for this, mm-hmm. this section. This is what he says concerning chapter 14 and verse uh, 12. During the life of Jesus on earth, his work was restricted to the limitations of his physical presence. After he ascended to his Father and the Holy Spirit came in his name, a greater and more extended work would be done by the fuller inspiration of the apostles and the more extended mission they would fulfill. Then, when miraculous gifts should cease altogether 
The church, through its members, would enter upon its worldwide mission of carrying the truth of God to the world. This last, performed through the regular working of the laws of the Spirit, would be more far-reaching than the miraculous manifestations. It is comparable to the works of God in the natural world. Jesus, by the exercise of miraculous power, created food to feed multitudes. But this, while more showy and calculated to attract attention, was not so efficient or effective as the regular workings of God through the laws of nature. So yeah, trying to explain the phrase "greater works." Right, saying yeah, it'll have more sense, influence. We do greater works than than Jesus. Not saying that you will heal someone that's more dead than someone that <laughs> you know you won't. Yeah, I can. It won't be like better. Do like, something. Oh well, this guy died of uh, yeah. a disease, and I brought him back. Oh well, this guy died of a uh, really bad disease. Yeah, and I brought him back, so that's better. Yeah. He wasn't just four days dead. Yeah, he was six days dead. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Right. So it's uh, more in terms of quantity than quality. That's Lipscomb's yeah. idea, anyway. Yeah, it's got to be the explanation of that. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, that's all the time we got for think. We'll come back in a few minutes, and uh, well, a few minutes for us, and a split second for you, and get some applications about some of these things we've been studying about. that you can use as you walk away from these three rich chapters and uh, hopefully have a little bit more information. Uh, We wanted to share just a few, just a handful here. And I'll start with this one. Here's lesson number one. The words of the apostles are equal in weight to the words of Jesus Christ. Now, how did I get that out of this? Well, it kind of has to do with what we're talking about with regard to the Spirit and His role here. But I am thinking in terms of what Jesus says in, uh, regarding the source of His Word, the source of His teachings. Uh, look at verse 10 of chapter 14. He says, The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. And then uh, in verse 31 of the same chapter, he says, I do as the Father has commanded me. So the Father is the source of Jesus' words. Now, take compare that with John 16, verse 7. Uh, he says, If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And then when he, then he, then he goes down to verse 13. He says, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, that is, whatever He hears from the Father, He will speak and He will declare to you the things that are to come. So the Spirit gets His information from the Father and speaks on that authority to the apostles. Jesus gets His information from the Father and speaks the same word. So whether it's coming from Jesus or whether it's coming from the apostles, it's coming ultimately from the Father, who is the authority role in the Godhead. Yes, the Spirit and Jesus were submissive to the Father. That's all through the book of John. Another lesson for another time. But here's where I'm going with this. Some people justify certain teachings and actions because they say, they argue, uh... You know, uh, the apostles may have addressed this, but Jesus never said anything about fill in the blank. Right. Um, Well, we could give a lot of examples of that. I'll just share one prominent example, homosexuality. Um, I've heard this argument made over and over again to justify homosexuality in the church. Uh, Well, yes, you know, you can go to Romans chapter 1, or you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, or you can go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and point out how homosexuality is condemned, 
But that's Paul speaking. Jesus never said anything against homosexuality. Right. Of course, he did any time he prohibited fornication or sexual immorality. That word fornication linguistically includes homosexuality, but we'll set that aside (laughs) and for now make the application that Jesus got his information from the same source Paul got his information. So they're at equal weight according to Jesus. Right. You know, according to Jesus. If you believe Jesus and you set his words at a high standard, then you have to believe every word that the apostles wrote in inspired Christian uh, inspired literature. Right. I got two points to add to that. Good. John 15 and verse 20. Jesus said, "Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master." If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Yeah, I, so, I hadn't thought about that one. That's good. There's If you're going to keep the words of Jesus, you're going to keep the words of his apostles. Why? What reason do you have to do that? Chapter And I know I'm getting a little ahead of ourselves here, but chapter 17 that we're going to look at next week, in verse 18, as you, this is Jesus praying to the Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Yeah. And we have been talking at length about how Jesus has been sent by the Father. And if you believe in Jesus, you believe in the one who sent him, who is the Father. So you believe in Christ, you believe in the Father. Well, now, when Jesus is going to go and send the Helper, well, the process, or I guess the, the same thing that applied to Jesus with the Father... And the one who sent him applies to the apostles and the one that sent them, mm-hmm. which is Jesus. So if you believe if you believe in God, you believe in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, you must believe in his apostles and what those apostles wrote, what they had to say, because Jesus ultimately is the one guiding those apostles, just as God is the one guiding Jesus. Right. So it's a to me it's the same kind of a scenario. You can't you can't believe in Jesus and not God. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, you cannot, or you can't believe in God and not Jesus, also flipping it around. You can't believe in Jesus and not his apostles because Jesus is the one that sent those apostles. Jesus is the one that claims to have taught them and to have given them all the things that they're going to need, as we have mentioned here with the helper. That comes from Christ. And so if you don't believe in his apostles, you don't believe in him. Yeah. And that's a theme that Jesus tried to stress to the Jews about himself and the Father. Right. Let's let's try to work one or two more in here. Uh, just to borrow the phrase from the old hymn, here's lesson number two. There's a great day coming. Uh, Jesus was talking about this as a matter of comfort, not dread with his disciples, but... This is what he was talking about in chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, when he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. There's, oh, there's so much and so little time in that. Um... One of the things that I wanted to say about that is that Jesus is promising a second coming. And he's talking about a literal second coming at the end of time. And uh, one in which he will take his saints away. Which kind of leads me to the second thing from this. Which indicates that heaven is a place that is not here. And you might think that's kind of silly, but... There's a popular theory about heaven that's being circulated now that, you know, heaven is basically the earth restored. Uh, God, Jesus is coming back. He's going to restore the earth. And uh, the earth is going to be the place where all the believers will dwell and mm-hmm. spend an eternity with the Father. Uh, this seems to indicate that he is going away upon his ascension and in that away place, he's going to prepare rooms for his disciples. Then he's going to come back in the second coming, receive them to himself, and take them away from earth into that place. Uh, the other thing had to do with the nature of heaven, 
And you notice the translation I read from had rooms instead of mansions. There's a very popular translation that says, In my Father's house are many mansions. And it's given us uh, other hymns like, you know, I've got a mansion over the hilltop. And very materialistic views of heaven, you know, right. in my opinion. I think we need to read this in the sense of, you know, there's going to be room for everybody in heaven. Everybody who belongs there will have a place. Unlike in this world where everybody doesn't necessarily have a place, uh, right. it's going to be different in that place, in that regard. So it's not really about the nature of your house, that it's going to be a great mansion, like in Beverly Hills. Um, yeah. It's it's more about inclusion of all believers. Right. So, oh man, there's a lot of stuff packed into that little promise. Right. And, and I'll, uh, the next thing I think won't apply unless you've... No, okay. keep going. Um, we'll go to chapter 15 and talk about the vine and the branches. And when we were talking a little bit in the break, break, we mentioned that some people maybe have used this to talk about, well, some people have used this in discussing denominations and saying, look, Jesus is the vine. Everybody believes in Jesus. If we all have faith in him, there's going to be different branches. Mm-hmm. You know, you guys. We even be, use the term branch with regard to religions. You know, this religious right. branch, mm-hmm. or this is a branch of Christianity, and so it makes it you know, a nice little proof text for. Yeah, the vine would be Christ, the basis of Christianity. The branches would be Baptist, Catholic, Methodist, and then, and then if you could even make the, a branch, or they would for think of the vine as non-denomination, the, the Lord's Church, or the body of Christ, right? You know, or the Church of Christ, or the just the church, the one church, right? Uh, you know, so, so I don't think they always think of the vine as as Christ, but okay. Well, it, in terms of his body, but all these branches are branching off of the the one true church, you right? Know, which is clearly taught, you know. So yeah. they would identify that with Ephesians four. There is one body. Okay, yeah, that's but the many vine. members. Yeah. That's divine, and then we've got all these branches. Mm-hmm. Kind of like Paul talks about in First Corinthians, chapter twelve. You know, one body, many members. Maybe mm-hmm. something similar there. They might use that in the same yeah. vein. I'm not sure. I haven't heard it used that way, but it would make sense if they tried. Uh, but but we're not using it. Yeah, though. we're not. I'm just trying to tell you what it is. Um, C.S. Lewis even has something similar to this. Uh, he talked about the beginning. I think it's in the prologue. I don't think it's chapter one. Mm-hmm. In the very beginning right. of Mere Christianity, he talks about um, Christianity describes it as a hallway, and there's many rooms down the hallway. You pretty much decide what room you want to get go into. Don't bother anybody else in another room because we all belong, we're all unified along the same hallway. So pretty much he's saying if you want to be a Catholic, a Methodist, a Baptist, whatever, it's fine. Yeah, he Everybody says it just along. has to be that way. You know, yeah. it's just... And it's okay, you know, and, but, and I, that conflicts with uh, so much teaching in the New Testament. Exactly. I think the two of us would definitely take issue with that, and especially on John 15, it doesn't make one bit of sense, especially when you read it in the context of just the next few chapters, which again, I'm getting into John 17, but John yeah. 17 is all you need to say about the unity of the church. Uh, he prays that all of us specifically those that who will believe those who will believe through the apostles he prays that all of us will be one perfectly so and then paul mm-hmm. writes all throughout his letter especially in philippians chapter 2 about being united being of the same mind being in full accord so there's really not this idea of hey everybody believe in christ but your own brand of it you take it this way, you take it that way, you take it this way. Paul wants them to be unified. Christ himself here in John 17 wants us all to be unified. There's one body. There are many individual members of the body, but not members of the body that are you know, doing completely their own thing and not concerned about the rest of the body, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and I think it's also helpful to remember the context of the conversation. This isn't Jesus speaking at a big religious conference, an ecumenical gathering of some kind. It's Jesus talking to 11 men in the middle of the night, 
prior to his crucifixion. And he's saying, I am the vine, and you, eleven men, are branches on me. And when he says, he's talking in terms of disciples, not churches, because in the same context he says that this is what glorifies my Father, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples, not denominations, not churches, prove as branches to be disciples. Right. So anybody who makes that application to denominationalism is not reading the context of the passage of Scripture. Correct. There's the design is for one body of Christ. Right. Yeah. Well, we could have drawn more lessons out, but uh, unfortunately we're out of time. So we'll mm-hmm. put a bookmark in John right there and uh, plan on covering chapter 17 the next time we get together. We're so grateful to you for joining us, and uh, we hope that uh, you're downloading this, every lesson, subscribing to the podcast, uh, rating us, writing reviews. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, follow us on Twitter, The 66 Podcast, and catch updates, you know, when every new episode's coming out. And keep in touch. Uh, you can email me at dekaiser at arcoc.com or get Andrew at akingsley at arcoc.com. Next week, we're going to look at one of the most beautiful prayers in Scripture, which shouldn't be surprising, seeing that it came from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ.